Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kitties. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with none other than Tommy James about his 50-plus years in the music industry and his unbelievable string of hits. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. Do you know the expression, the old top 40 radio announcer who went, the hits just keep on coming? Absolutely. That's Tommy James. The guy was a nonstop force of music to be reckoned with. It's incredible because, you know, you say to people, Tommy James, and, and they might come back with Moni Moni, but they don't realize. Or Crimson and Clover. Yeah, or Crimson and Clover. You know, or maybe Crystal Blue Persuasion, or or maybe Hanky. Pa- okay, so we're proving our point here, aren't we? You see the point, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. But the thing about it is, and, and the discovery that people are going to have. Not that I want to, you know, go ahead of the game here. What Tommy James did better than almost any artist. Well, he's still doing it today. From bubblegum to party songs rock to psychedelic progressive album rock. He surfed it. He went with the flow and the changes, and not only was it authentic, he made hits in each of those categories you just mentioned. He took songwriters like, you know, with Hanky Panky, you know, Jeff Barry, Ellie Greenwich. He definitely brought his own style to those. But then when he got into co-writing his own songs, it became his very own, too. Yeah. So that might let you know that I am so excited to share this conversation that happened from a studio in New Jersey, chosen by Tommy, where he was recording, get this, a new record. The guy is a machine. Indeed. (laughs) I mean, and lots and lots of tales. Again, don't want to give too much away, but you know, there's a little bit of, of tough guys in the mix here. There's you know, iconic basement studios that you never would think you'd get great sound out of. I think we need to get into it. Let's hit it. Would you introduce yourself, please? Well, hello. I'm Tommy James. <laughs> you and, sound uh, exactly like them. How do you do that? I, I, I've had lots of practice. <laughs> yeah, I've, a lot of years worth. Well, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. I'm going to 
kind of tell you about yourself for a second. 23 gold singles, nine platinum albums, 100 million albums sold, 32 billboard, hot 100 hits, and you're only 21. (laughs) That's right. Well, listen, you had it pretty good. Thanks for that great intro. I'm very proud to do this, and it's wonderful talking to you, Dennis. You know, since I've been with Rhino, music has gone through all of these changes from tapes to CDs to downloading and then streaming, and we're still going. Who knows what's going to come next? But vinyl is back, too, which is really cool. That's right. Vinyl's making a big comeback. So uh, Those kids today. Everything. And yeah, that's right. It's the kids buying it, too. Exactly. Yeah. So, so here we go. This is the Casey Kasem moment. You were born Thomas Gregory Jackson almost a decade before me. You grew up in Michigan by way of Dayton, Ohio, and you were a child model at age four. What did you model at age four? Well, (laughs) that's a true story. I was taking piano lessons at a conservatory in South Bend, Indiana, and when I was four years old, and my my mother put me there actually to learn to learn <laughs> to learn how to actually uh, play an instrument while i was we were doing a little concert i got spotted by an executive from bf goodrich you remember them they made tires oh and yeah stuff. the tires they were doing what was called rubberware and that was galoshes and cowboy excuse hats excuse me <laughs> ra- rain <laughs> raincoats and um, uh, just all kinds of stuff that was uh, made out of plastic and rubber they had a big article and a big layout a double page layout in life magazine at the time and they wanted to make that article that page come to life and so it was you know a mother and a father and a sister and a little brother and i played the little brother and they had me modeling clothes this new B.F. Goodrich stuff. and Rubberware. Uh, yes. <laughs> I must have had a great time. I don't remember much about it, but I must have had a great time. My mother said that I really enjoyed doing it. So it was my first time up in front of people. My grandfather bought me that year a ukulele. <laughs> True story. I learned how to play songs on the radio on the ukulele and sing when I was like four and five and six years old. That translated into a guitar when I first saw Elvis on TV when I was nine in 1956. So uh, I guess the rest is history. I don't know. <laughs> but that's when I started well, playing I'll, guitar. Well, I'll take you there. So first band, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. was the Echoes. Right. That, that became Tommy and the Tornadoes. Right. Boy, you did your homework. That became the Shondells. Right. And then Jack Douglas on, I'll do it, W-N-I-L... Recorded you in their studios, and one of the songs was Hanky Panky. The lyrics, even when you got into your hands, weren't fully formed yet. Well, you know, with Hanky Panky, all you really have to remember is my baby does the Hanky Panky. (laughs) You're cool no matter what you say after that. Fine. 
the record wasn't half bad that Jeff and Ellie did. Let me explain. When I recorded Hanky Panky, I was 16 years old. And as you say, we did it in WNIL radio studios in my hometown of Niles, Michigan. It was released locally in 1964. But what had happened is I had first heard the record done by another group. And I wanted to find out, you know, what that record was. And we found out that Hanky Panky was on the flip side of a record by the Raindrops that was Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich called That Boy John. It was, about, wow. it was about John Kennedy. And when John Kennedy was killed, the record was immediately pulled off the market. And, of course, the B-side went with it. We couldn't find the record of Hanky Panky. All I could remember is my baby test Hanky Panky. So when we went in the studio to record it, we just made up the rest of the record. It came out locally in southern Michigan and, you know, went on the jukeboxes. And it was, you know, you know half a hit locally. But it died shortly after that. So in 1965, I graduated from high school, and I took my band on the road playing up through the Midwest. I was playing this dumpy little club in Janesville, Wisconsin in early 66, and right in the middle of our two weeks, the IRS shuts the guy down for not paying his taxes. So we get sent home, you know, feeling like real dogs, you know, feel, feeling like real losers. But that's how the good Lord works, because as soon as I got home, I got the word from Pittsburgh. I got a call from Pittsburgh that changed my life. Bob uh, Mack. Bob Mack was a, a local disc jockey in Pittsburgh who found the record in an old record bin, one copy, played it at his dances. Everybody was asking for it. And a week later, it's on the radio in Pittsburgh, and they bootlegged it. They had a little bootlegging operation in Pittsburgh, and they bootlegged 80,000 copies of this hanky-panky record and sold them in wow. 10 days. And we were sitting at number one, but only in the city of Pittsburgh. So they tracked me down and called me at that very moment. And if that guy hadn't have gone belly up, if that guy had, had paid his taxes, <laughs> you and I wouldn't be talking here today. <laughs> Things heated up because you, Mac, Chuck Rubin, you started meeting with labels to great response, but you didn't hear from one label head because he was, quote, out of town. And we're going to go deeper into Mr. Levy, but I still think it's kind of funny that you ended up on roulette because, quote, the other labels started dropping like flies despite their interest. That's right. That's right. The Snap single was 63. Then it came out on Red Fox. And it, was on, it wasn't until 66 till it came out on roulette, right? That's right. So that took a while. Well, what happened was after they tracked me down, I went to Pittsburgh to do some local television and radio and so forth. Sure enough, I got there and the record is sitting at number one. And so I basically had to uh, grab the first group that I could find to be the new Shondells because I couldn't put the original group back together. So a week later, we're in New York selling the master of Hanky Panky to you know a major label to take it nationally and internationally. And we got a yes from everybody. Pittsburgh was a big local market, and we got a breakout in all the trade papers with Hanky Panky out of Pittsburgh. And so when we went to New York, we got a yes from Columbia. We got a yes from RCA, from Atlantic, from all the majors. The last place we took the record to was an indie label, Roulette. I went to bed that night feeling real good because we got a yes from everybody. We're probably going to be 
with one of the big corporate labels. And the next day, the next morning, I wake up and we start getting phone calls from all the labels that said yes the day before. Suddenly are saying, listen, Tom, we got to pass. I said, what do you mean you got to pass? I thought we, we had a deal. Finally, Jerry Wexler at Atlantic told me the truth, that the head of Roulette Records, Morris Levy, had called all the other labels and backed them down, said, this is my artist, back off. <laughs> Basically, Morris backed everybody down and scared them, and uh, we were apparently going to be on Roulette. So that's actually how we got to be on Roulette Records. And, of course, Roulette Records took it to number one in the United States, and number one all throughout the world. It became the biggest summertime hit of 1966. And uh, from little acorns grow big oak trees. That's all I can say. What precipitated you changing your name to Tommy James? Actually, I, it was put to me. Uh, we were signed uh, as the Shondells. They wanted to put my name up front. Chuck Rubin, as a matter of fact, who was one of the people who helped sell the masters, said to me, so, so is it going to be Tommy Jackson? And I said, no, I want, I want a single syllable last name. Oh, well, what are you, what are you Jones, James, what is it? And I'm going down and I, I, I yeah, James is good. You know, in 30 seconds, in, in the time it took me to light a cigarette, I changed my name from Tom Jackson to Tommy James. <laughs> and so they said, Tommy James and the Shondells, right? I, that's it. Boom. So, bam, that's how fast it happened, honestly. If you're looking for a loving man, a loving man, say, say, I am. If you're looking for a hugging man, a hugging man, say, say, I am. If you're looking for a kissing man, a kissing man, say, say, I am. As you say, that we had a second record after Hanky Panky, who was our second gold record with Say I Am. And then I really needed producers, and I need writers around me who could, you know, really keep us supplied with a lot of music. Because I was only writing hit-and-miss stuff. I really wasn't devoting a whole lot of time to writing. And I certainly wasn't a producer. So Bo Gentry and Richie Cordell came over from Kama Sutra Records. You're familiar with Kama Sutra. And um, Absolutely. I asked them to come on the team. The song they first brought me was It's Only Love. You know, we put it out, and it was our third hit in a row. It wasn't as big as Hanky Panky, but it was, you know, it did all right for us. And then they came to me with I Think We're Alone Now. And I Think We're Alone Now was such a major change for us. And they first brought it to me. It was a ballad. This would have been in December of 66, but you heard the thing, and you knew it was a smash as soon as you heard the hook. So we went in the studio and did a demo of it, changed the tempo to, you know, an up-tempo, faster tune. I put in the eighth notes, the doom-doom-doom-doom on the guitar, took it back to Morris Levy at the record company, and he flipped out. He says, that's your next single. And so we went in and uh, produced it. I actually did the vocal, I'll never forget, Christmas Eve, 1966. And boy, what a Christmas present that was. Indeed. Can you do me a favor? Sure. Can you sing? Because the cadence of I Think We're Alone Now obviously totally changed between a ballad and how it ended up. Can you sing how it was and how it became just that phrase? Well, it was just really slow. You know, you know, children behave, you know. <laughs> 
just very oh slow. Oh, my gosh. Woof. Very slow and, and uh, you know, just it was it was okay. I mean, I think we're alone now. You know, the funny part is I just did a slow version that's going to be on the new album that, that we're yes, putting Yes, I out. know that. And, and I that know that. Is, so, you know, what goes around comes around. We, Indeed. Uh, but, of course, the hit was when we went in the studio and did it, we kept it up-tempo. I think we're alone now. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. I think we're alone now. The beating of our hearts is the only sound. So it was about a year later that you, Mr. Cordell... Peter Lucia, right? Bo, mm-hmm. and that Bobby Bloom guy who went on to have Montego Bay. Right. We're working on a party song, and as a result of spying a building from your apartment terrace, you had your answer to a key lyric and title. Would you take the story from sure, there? Sure, sure. We're talking about our eighth single, Money Money. And actually, what happened was we went in the studio. We wanted to create a party rock song, which hadn't been done. By this time, it's 1968. And, of course, nobody's putting out party rock songs anymore. Everybody's way too stoned. So we created this little three-chord riff. We didn't know quite what we were making. We just kept making tape copies of these three chords. Pretty soon, it started to come together and sound pretty good. And so Richie and I, and, of course, Bobby Bloom, as you say, who worked on the song a little bit and Bo worked on it a little bit, Richie and I basically were the lyric writers. And we're up in my apartment, and we're, it's the night before I'm supposed to do the lead vocal, and we still have no working title. And, you know, we're trying to come up with a two-syllable girl's name. We're looking for, like, a, a Sloopy or a Boney Maroney or something. Yeah. And everything sounded so stupid. So I'm living in Manhattan at the time, and we go out on my living room terrace. It's in the springtime, and I look up into the nighttime sky, and Richie and I light up a cigarette, and we're really disgusted with ourselves because we can't come up with anything. And the first thing our eyes fall on is the Mutual of New York Insurance Company, where it goes M-O-N-Y with the dollar sign in the middle of the O, Mutual of New York. And we just start, <laughs> we just start laughing because we both saw it at the same time and realized that's the perfect title for this. And M-O-N-Y, Money, And we go back inside and finished writing the song. And that became the title of the song. What a session that was. It was really a, a party that got captured on tape. We had secretaries from upstairs. We were in the basement of the 1650 Broadway building at Allegro Studios. We had people from off the street come in screaming and singing background and clapping their hands and everything. That really was how that came together. You captured lightning in a bottle. And I was watching last night, I was watching the music video for the song, 
did you shoot it live with the projections behind you, or did they chroma key all that? Uh, no, they did all that. See, to me, it always made great sense to make a film of your hit record. It just was common sense to me, and we did that with Moni Moni. But we couldn't get that damn thing played anywhere in the United States on television. TV people were really against playing rock and roll on TV. And there was no, you know, no MTV. There was no forum to play it in. So about the only place we could get it played was European movie theaters in between double features. That's crazy. <laughs> so it was me and Daffy Duck for a long time. <laughs> Daffy yeah, wanted but, to but close. but that's so cool. Yeah, so, I mean, that really is a true story. And then later, it was a hit, a big hit in England. And so they started playing the video in England on two shows, on Top of the Pops and Beat Club. And they did a, a video of the video to play it on the Beat Club out of London. That ended up, years later, going back on MTV. So it made its way onto MTV, uh, even though we recorded it in 68. Wow. So this one's for me personally. I'm, I'm a flip side guy. I'm, I'm surrounded by, yeah. in my home studio, by about 12,045s. I right. think, you know, the A-B side thing, I think one, two, three, and I fell should have been a huge hit too. Well, thank you. It was supposed to be. You know that the flip side, I had a heck of a time getting roulette to put out Moni Moni. One, two, three, and I fell, which was the B side, was supposed to be the A side. That was one of the last songs that Bo and Richie and I did together. Roulette really thought that I was out of character with Moni Moni, and they wanted to put out one, two, three, and I fell, which was a little more sort of bubblegum pop. Let's take a break before we get to a major 50-year anniversary and talk about the tough guys. You already talked about it, but Me, the Mob, and the Music, One Hell of a Ride with Tommy James and the Shondells was a three-time read for me. It's, it's a permanent one on my nightstand because I can't get enough. Me and the Mob and the Music is the title of a book that we released several years ago that's going to be a movie. The book is in its eighth printing, and I just can't believe the reception that it got from the public, and it just keeps on selling. I'm very thrilled about that. It's the first book I've ever written. But for years, people wanted me to write my memoirs and to write about roulette records and our crazy and tumultuous and sometimes dangerous relationship with roulette. And the reason it was so crazy and tumultuous is because... Roulette Records, in addition to being a functioning independent record label, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. And we couldn't say a word about that, and we didn't know it when we signed with them. We, this is something we learned incrementally, you know, who we were dealing with. When we started writing the book, Me, the Mob, and the Music, we were originally going to call it Crimson and Clover. You know, write about the hits and making music and being in the studio and stuff. But my writing partner, Martin Fitzpatrick, and I looked at each other when we were about a third of the way into it and said, you know, if we don't tell the, the roulette story, the whole story, we're cheating ourselves and everybody else because that really is the story. But I was very nervous finishing the book because some of these guys were still walking around. 
So I was a little nervous uh, <laughs> about finishing the thing and telling everything. So we put the book on a shelf for a couple of years. Then in 06, the last of the roulette regulars, as I called them, passed away. And we felt like we could finish the book without any worries. So we did. I told everything I could about what we went through with this going on, this very sinister story going on in the background while we were doing Money Money and Dragging a Line and I Think We're Alone Now and all that stuff. As soon as the book was done, Simon & Schuster grabbed it, put it out, made it a hit, and we started getting calls for the movie rights and for the Broadway rights. And so it's going to be coming out as a movie now, produced by Barbara Defina who produced Goodfellas and Casino and Hugo a couple of years ago with Martin Scorsese and Cape Fear and just a string of great movies. And we're so flattered and honored that she's doing it. And the screenplay has just been written by Matthew Stone. The director is being chosen as we speak. As soon as the director is finalized, the technical crew will come on board and then the casting begins. And so we're probably looking at about another... 18 months to two years. Wow. Um, we all know now that the practice of paying for radio promo wasn't exactly a rare thing, whether it's Alan Freed or Dick Clark. Was there a point where you just considered it part and parcel with the business? Roulette never had a real tough time getting us on radio, I'm, I'm very glad to say, because, you know, radio really created us. We were a creation of radio. You know, some acts are big concert acts, other acts are big songwriters and singer-songwriters. We really were creations of AM radio. And so I'm very glad we never really had a problem getting on the radio. But what was really going on at Roulette was that they were into other things, as not just the music business. So we just pretended we didn't see a lot of the things we saw. But, of course, getting paid was a whole other matter because crime doesn't pay. So <laughs> we found that out. So we had to constantly make decisions. Do we take our life in our hands and try to sue them and get off the label? Or do we shut up and stay where we are? Because we were having such success. One of the things I say in interviews a lot is, you know, if we had gone with one of the corporate labels that we could have gone with, Columbia, RCA, any of the others, we would have been lucky to have been a one-hit wonder. Hmm. You know, because we would have had so much competition from other groups, plus the fact that starting out with a record like Hanky Panky, such a fluky record to begin with, it's very likely that we would have been turned over to an in-house A&R man producer, and that's probably the last time anybody would have heard from us. At Roulette, so they actually needed us. Yep, and and so we got true. all their attention. We got the total attention uh, at roulette of everyone uh, on the staff. And so, and I, I learned the business. Rumor has it, let's see if this is correct, that George Harrison came to you with songs from a band called Grapefruit that were in the Money Money vein, and you didn't want to do more of the same. You knew it was time for a change. Uh, Money Money was such a big hit in England right after it was a hit here. The whole idea of the, of the Beatles publishing company, Apple, was that they were going to write songs for other artists. Uh, Apple was, before it was a label, was a publishing company. And so they were going to write tunes for the rest of their friends in the industry. Well, George Harrison in 68 was producing a group called the Grapefruit. 
And so he and Grapefruit wrote a batch of songs for Tommy James and the Shondells and delivered them over here. And by that time, we were doing Crimson and Clover. Our style had really changed. I wasn't doing the party rock stuff anymore, and we just ended up not doing it. I wish I had done a bunch of them. I was very flattered and honored that he did that, but we didn't end up doing any of them because uh, you know, our, our style had changed so drastically by that time. So you went on the campaign trail with Hubert Humphrey in 1968, mm-hmm. and that was probably the segue where you realized that pop music was changing to a more progressive, trippy, album-oriented sound, and, well, you know, yeah. and there was a new radio format that didn't play singles, yeah. right? Yeah, what happened is we were asked by Hubert Humphrey and the campaign if we would perform, sort of be his opening act. <laughs> And it's the first time that a rock act had ever teamed up with a presidential candidate before. And we were just blown away and very thankful that he asked. We did it with him. We went out on the road with him and did the entire campaign. The whole industry in that period of time turned upside down. When we left, the big acts on the radio were all singles acts. It was us and Gary Puckett, the Rascals and the Association and the Buckinghams and just a Leslie Gore. I'm leaving a whole lot of people out, but, you know, all singles acts. When we got back from the campaign 90 days later, it was all album acts. It was Blood, Sweat and Tears, Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Joe Cocker, Neil Young. We were just very, very fortunate that we were working on a little tune called Crimson and Clover during that time. And by the way, we knew that if we didn't start selling albums at that point, our career was probably done. There was a mass extinction of singles acts right at that moment. Crimson and Clover allowed us to make that jump from top 40 singles AM radio to FM progressive album rock. And uh, we had friends on both sides of, of the aisle on that one. And uh, so that was a hugely important record to us. And probably next to our first hit record was the most important record we ever made. Second number one. And it was the first record that I produced for the group by myself. The whole single came together in uh, five and a half hours, I'll never forget. We ended up, it, it ended up being the biggest selling record of our career. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about one of my favorite tracks ever, which is Sugar on Sunday, which yeah. the clique took to number 22 on the charts. How did Sweet Cherry Wine, you had a top 10 hit, but that wasn't on Crimson and Clover. So how did that kind of find its way in the middle there? Actually, what happened when we went to uh, do the next album, Allegro, our studio was being... Uh, Uh, was shut down for repairs. They were bringing it up to 24-track from 16. And uh, this is later in 1969. So I went over to a little studio on Broadway called Broadway Sound, which was owned, by the way, by Whitey Ford from the Yankees. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes. 
so we went over and we checked it out, and that's where we first saw the very first Moog synthesizer. Wow. Uh, it was the first one in New York. Uh, we couldn't believe it. It looked like an old 1920s switchboard, you know, with the RCA plugs and number yep, please, yep. you know, that took up a whole wall. So I went over and we played with it. It had a little keyboard and it was a little monophonic keyboard that, but it could be drums, it could be trumpets, it could be wind, it could be anything. Sounded like anything. And we knew immediately that was, that was going to be the future. So which came first, Tommy, that, that intro of Sweet Cherry Wine, that keyboard intro that then kind of changes pace right before the vocal? Mm-hmm. You know, like if you play that next to Inagata DeVita, it's like, wow, you went progressive in a heavy, heavy way, man. Well, well thank you. What happened was, uh, you know, uh, Sweet Cherry Wine, that was the Cellophane Symphony album, got created right. basically around the synthesizer because we had switched studios, and Sweet Cherry Wine, which we had already recorded, went on that album and became the follow-up single to Crimson and Clover. One of the funniest conversations I ever had was when Whitey Ford took me out to lunch, and you should have heard me talking baseball and him trying to talk rock and roll. That was the most hysterical (laughs) conversation I've ever had. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know, John Lemon and Paul McCarthy... So Crystal Blue Persuasion, it couldn't have fit the times better because it exuded major hope for the world, and the world really needed to get together now at that moment in time. Well, Crystal Blue was, uh, yeah, it was one of those songs that, uh, well, it was frankly about when I became a Christian, and that's really what the song was about. The title came to me, you know, we're always on the make for new titles and always trying to find interesting word combinations. And a kid from uh, Atlanta, we were doing a college in Atlanta, came up to me with this poem called Crystal Persuasion. I never was able to find this kid again, by the way. Wow. So he wrote, and it was about the book of Revelation from the Bible. I thought that was really interesting. And we, so we decided to write a song around it. And I needed an extra syllable in there, so we called it crystal blue persuasion. And I just thought it was a fascinating word combination. But it ended up being one of the hardest records we ever made because we completely overproduced it. When I went in the studio, we had you know a full set of drums on it. We had three guitars. We had uh, another keyboard on it. It just was too much. And when we got done with it, we just looked at each other and said, you know, that's not crystal blue persuasion anymore. So wow. I spent the first two weeks uh, making the record and the second two weeks unmaking the record. We started stripping it down, pulling yeah. things out until finally all that was left was a little flamenco guitar and a Hammond organ, a little trickling organ, and a bongo drum, and uh, you know a few other things. And so we had to let it breathe, so to speak, to make it uh, sound like crystal blue. A new day is coming. Changing. 
Can we take a quick left turn to a track that I've played on the radio a gazillion times, which is Tighter Tighter, that you wrote for Alive and Kickin'. Mm -hmm. That could have been a Tommy James and the Shondells song. Yeah, well, it was supposed to be. The Shondells and I sort of parted company in 1970. We didn't really realize we weren't going to get back together again. We just took a break. But they ended up doing their thing. I ended up doing mine. I started producing people. I was asked to produce this group Alive and Kickin', who was a friend of my wife, my former wife, who was their manager. So I went out and I heard them live. They sounded real good. But I just sort of put it on hold. And I wrote this song, Tighter, Tighter, went in the studio and uh, produced the track and got everything ready. But I just didn't like the way I was, uh, my vocal was coming out. I just didn't like the way I was singing it. So I, I thought of this group alive and kicking, and I, they had two singers. There was a male and a female singer, and I rewrote it as a duet and brought them into the studio, and they did the vocal on top of the track that I had already done. We put their guitar player on and uh, their keyboard player, who was Bruce Sedano, by the way, who ended up marrying Donna Summer. <laughs> right. <laughs> was their keyboard player. And it came out, and I loved the way they did it. And I took it up to Morris. He loved it. He put and so we put it out on roulette, and it went number one. So before we get to solo, you kind of took a break. Uh, are we talking about the break uh, after the Shondells? Yes. Sure. Well, I was exhausted, and uh, so were they. We had been on the run for almost five years, and you know, if we weren't on the road, we were in the studio. If we weren't in the studio, we were writing. And honestly, uh, I was basically losing it. And so we took what we thought was going to be six months off and just did nothing. Well, they started a studio and started a business back in Pittsburgh. I started producing other people, as I said, and then I just started producing myself, went back in the studio with uh, Ball and Chain, and, and I actually put another uh, with another group. That ended up being a group that I took on the road in 1971. We did Dragon the Line. Suddenly I'm putting out solo records. We had another 12 chart records on roulette, and uh, I was uh, uh, very content to just let things stay on like that. All I can say is that I left roulette in 1974 and went out to Berkeley, California on Fantasy Records and right. did two albums at Fantasy, the In Touch album and the yes. Midnight, Midnight Rider album. You know, just 
put myself in some different situations. Then I came back to New York and had some more hits with Three Times in Love on Millennium Records. That was ended up having 32 chart singles over the course of my career. We did about 110 million records. Finally, uh, in the early 90s, uh, we, I started my own label, Aura Records, and we began... By the way, uh, Rhino Records purchased the Roulette Masters, including everything that I had done from 1966 to 1970, late 74. It was a big deal because I was finally getting paid for my master's, but I just am very, very happy to still be doing this 53 years after uh, I signed with Roulette. I'm, I just can't believe that this all started with a little record called Hanky Panky. Well, this has been such a pleasure. And, you know, as somebody who obviously did grow up hearing your songs on WABC and still has all my original singles, every one of them, that that are in decent shape. I'm amazed because I played The Living Daylights, as all of us did. You, you know, you may, owe me, been, you may owe me some money. You know, I probably do, <laughs> but, but I'm going to refer that to Rhino. <laughs> Crime doesn't pay. No, it doesn't. But thank you so much for taking the time. This is a pleasure. I can't my wait to, pleasure. to share it with everybody. Thank you, Dennis. You can't laugh. that I knew a bunch of Tommy's stuff, but I didn't realize the depth and the breadth of the body of work that that man created. He went through the stats. There are not that many artists of the rock and roll era that have been through all the changes, but really had that many big hits. And you know, he could have been a one-hit wonder with Hanky Panky, but just the way things laid out for him, he just found a path that led to an amazing career that still continues to this day. That's the amazing thing. His new album, Alive, is, is coming out about when people are going to listen to this. And, and he's even going back, as he said, and recreating some of his old songs, new versions. It's a little bit of a walk through musical history, listening to his catalog. Well, but that's what we expect on the Rhino Podcast. Do we not, Rich? It's true. It's true. And we have some special thanks this time around, don't we, Dennis? Yes, we do. Glenn Coots-Taylor engineer producer extraordinaire of tailor-made productions in beautiful downtown caldwell new jersey we couldn't be with tommy face to face on this one so thank you glenn for handling the audio on tommy's end of the line thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the rhino podcast remember you can listen to any and all of these great tommy james songs on your favorite streaming service and last but certainly not least, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next RhinoCast. 
Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Colt and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.